Hello, my name is Christine Murray, and welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make places worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings more than the buildings themselves. Today, I'm talking to Charlotte Harris from Harris Bug and Andrew McMullen from McMullen Studio about Horatio's Garden, their garden at the RHS Chelsea Flower Show. Horatio's Garden is a charity. They are dedicated to creating and nurturing beautiful, accessible and sustainable gardens for NHS spinal centers for those who have had spinal injuries. Their project is going to appear at Main Avenue at the Flower Show, and then it's going to be moving to Sheffield. And I am really excited to share this conversation where we hear how they collaborated with the patients and staff from the NHS spinal units to create this very special accessible garden. Let's listen in. My name is Charlotte Harris. Um, I'm co-director at Harris Bug Studio. We're a landscape design practice um, with studios in London, Devon and the Isle of Skye. Uh, We work across the UK and in Europe. And at the moment, we are elbows deep in the RHS Chelsea Flower Show. We're working with the, um, the National Spinal Injury Charity, Horatio's Garden, who are an incredible charity that make restorative garden spaces attached to NHS spinal injury units. And they work particularly with patients who've had spinal injuries and often they're traumatic and life-changing. And often those patients have to be in hospital for many months at a time, um, confined to beds and wheelchairs. Um, So at the moment they have six gardens in the 11 NHS spinal injury units. and they are doing a lot of work linking how well-being and physical improvement links to those garden spaces. So we're working with Horatio's Garden to make their eighth garden. The seventh is being built, so the six open, seventh being built. Their eighth one is at Sheffield, at the Northern General Hospital Sheffield. But before it goes there, it's going to fe- elements of it will feature at the RHS Chelsea Flower Show in May this month. Um, And we are really delighted to be working with Andrew McMullen, McMullen Studio, on that project. Um, We've designed the garden space and um, we're working with Andrew for the second time at Chelsea Flower Show in dialogue to create linked architecture and landscape. And we really love working with McMullen Studio because we feel like that conversation is always really rich and explorative and creative and positive. So, Andrew, tell me about what you're doing uh, as part of this project and your involvement. Great. Well, thanks very much. Um, So uh, we uh, it's a pleasure working again with Harris Bug Studio. Um, There are long term collaborators on on quite a few projects now. Um, And um, we did say that we would never do Chelsea Flower Show again. And somehow we found ourselves on the cusp of another another show garden, which is super exciting, um, but it's been probably our most um, challenging project. So my my background is in, I'm an architect, run a a design studio and uh, architectural practice in London. Um, We specialize in making extraordinary projects of which we feel that this is one of those projects. And we deal with all sorts of scales from the largest scale, which we're working on a hundred year master plan on a 12,000 acre estate in Shropshire, 
through to a uh, to, to small pieces of furniture and and uh, gardens of this scale um but it is very much our most difficult project and I think that's because of the nature of our client, who we are designing for, um, the sensitivities around the users, um, the pressure on uh, contributing to a gold medal, hopefully gold medal winning garden, which is um, where our uh, where we aim. But um, our role is 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 a garden room. Um, so in in almost all of the gardens so far, um, there's been a good garden pod. Uh, these pods um, create a, a warm, comfortable environment for patients, staff, families, friends to come together and enjoy the garden um, uh, through the whole season. Uh, so though the, the spaces are created, um, there's normally two, three of these buildings. Um, one of these buildings will be at the Chelsea Flower Show as a demonstration of their impact. So my understanding, also, oh, oh sorry. sorry, my understanding is that Chelsea Flower Show garden, you're going to be moving that to Sheffield. Is that right? Is that common for these flower show gardens to kind of pick up and go somewhere afterwards? Or is this kind of a new emerging thing where we, you know, it kind of pops up there and then later moves on somewhere else? I think that it has become much more prioritized by the RHS um, with an, a view to greater sustainability around a show that is five days in May. And that is rightly so. We have been showing gardens at Chelsea since 2014 and our gardens have always been relocated. But I think back then it was the exception rather than the rule. Whereas now there, it is very much frowned upon uh, if they're not being relocated. But I would say that I feel, and I would say this, but I feel this garden is different because really first and foremost, it has been designed for Sheffield and it's sort of stopping off at Chelsea on the way rather than being made for Chelsea and then slightly shoehorned into another location. Um, and I think that is really exciting. And, and the element of the garden room um, that Andrew worked on was an element that we, um, at Harrisburg Studio, but um, with Andrew, went and listened to patients at a number of the spinal injury centres where there are Horatio's gardens and asked them what we should prioritise in a space that's only 10 metres by 22 metres because the charity delivers a lot within their gardens and the space at Sheffield is eight times that. So we couldn't fit everything in, but we felt, I think you would agree, Andrew, that it was not for us to define what that space no. was. It was for the users to define that. Um, and so that was a process of many months and a lot of learning. And, and certainly the, the insights into things like the garden pod, when you hear someone saying, you know, I've had a life-changing spinal injury, um, I may never walk again and I have to come to terms with that in a shared ward with no privacy um, for many months at a time, you know, you realise the importance of what is actually a relatively small architectural space, isn't it, Andrew? But you realise that it, it, punch, it, it, it punches well above its size in terms of impact. Yeah, I mean, so what's taking place in the garden and in the pod? How does that work into the kind of process of rehabilitation? So talk about what patients are doing in there and what what it will bring to that um, to that process of recuperation. Or um, I, I guess the, sorry, I uh, sorry, just uh, yeah. I guess the hardest um, thing was sort of putting ourselves into the shoes of potential 
you know, emotional states um, that patients and family members will be in. <clears throat> and and I think we try as hard as we can to obviously do do that, but we can never get close to actually that real feeling. And so, as Charlotte said, the, the process of, um, I mean, it is in effect co-design, it's putting these patients and staff and, and family members around the table as, as equals and to design something in a truly collaborative way. Um, and in, in terms of the architecture of the pod, it was kind of how does something need to be designed for so much flexibility? It could be someone who has to make a really private call to their solicitor. It could be a, their four-year-old daughter coming to visit. And how do all of the, how does this environment create the right um, result for everyone? And um, but but uh, but it is really about you know one of the things is about a trans is a transformative step change away from that sterile world. I think it is about getting you connected to nature, connected to the landscape, and to to slow everything down somewhat and to get to to in, to enjoy that um, that deeper kind of perspective on life that being surrounded by nature. Um, will have that you may not be able to achieve in a you know in a sterile ward with beepers going off and and a thin curtain between you and your next um, patient. I think it also you know when we we think about the brief that we all had from the charity, Andrew, it was this idea was absolutely no compromise on the aesthetic, and that is as true of pod the garden building as it is of the whole garden. And that is why I think they're a pretty incredible charity, because they challenge the designers who work with them to be creative and not see an adaptive garden space as a limitation, but to see it as something to be more creative about, to challenge preconceptions around accessibility and to see the inclusivity of a garden as something that we can all benefit from. You know, we will all have experience of disability in our lives somehow ourselves or loved ones um but it may but it also inclusive gardens are better for everyone so whether that's the garden room and andrew did loads of you know testing at all levels both digitally but in person turning beds in a taped out space in one of the gardens you know this really rigorous testing whether that's the garden room or how that garden that broader garden is more sorry it's more broadly designed um, and I can give you a few examples of that. For example, um, you know, patients told us that their temperature regulation is very different after a spinal injury and you become much more susceptible to the effect of UV. So actually woodland gardens are really important and lots of shade. The idea of transpiration, cooling transpiration from trees and how we might keep people in shade and stop them from burning. So that gives us a design direction, a really, really important design direction. Patients told us that... Um, learning to use a wheelchair and having any gradient was a challenge um that there should be no joints or bumps or cracks in the paving because that 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 creates incredibly painful spasming so we needed to think about the materiality of what that surface was so those insights help us all to define better design in the garden and in terms of people are tend to be lying down or seated in a wheelchair there's a mix of of experiences does that inform the design of the pod and the planting and levels as well that you're working with yeah i think 100 uh, um 
I mean, just just to go back a step on the kind of designing for for, for patients is, is that we um, obviously we refer to Part M and all the regulations, but actually this is kind of put that to one side and really start again and li- listen to what was needed. And as, as Charlotte said, that example we taping it out was truly kind of blew our mind because we we had all of the turning paths and everything kind of set out, but there was something there wasn't a realness to that and we needed to be absolutely sure it was going to work. So to get the staff to move a bed, to feel the weight of a bed ourselves, to get into a wheelchair and try and operate it and then be told off that actually you're you're moving that wheelchair through your through your core as well as your hands and actually try to do that, you know, just with with you, you know, your upper arms. And it and it started to kind of sink home a little bit harder that we needed to be really nuanced and really and really listening um but yeah in terms of the position of you know whether in a wheelchair or on a bed um windows in the pod for example are very carefully positioned to um create vistas whether that be you know foreground views of particular um uh, planting or those longer views that ensures that although you may be in a in a private space, you always feel connected to other people and nature. Um, so it's getting that dial right. Um, and then for those that are on on beds, um, their neck mobility and strength is, you know, severely um, restricted. And a roof light in the pod allows people to kind of appreciate canopy of trees or the movement of clouds and. Um, that was a, like a particularly key aspect, I think, of of the architecture. Also, realizing that if you're lying on 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 a bed in a ward, you're see, seeing just a, a pretty mundane plasterboard ceiling, and maybe lucky to see some fluorescent lights in your view. But it, there isn't very much to kind of look at. So, the ceiling as well is a is it, the structure is a reciprocal structure, which is. Are, are borrowed from traditional um, construction like yurts and quite humble um, forms of architecture, which actually is a very efficient way to um, construct construct the pod, but also creates a really beautiful and interesting um, ceiling. You've also the, done some personalized elements. I understand you did some ceramics. Can you talk a little bit about the the kind of artwork inside the pod and and what that is? Yeah. So the the garden is going to Sheffield and um, there's two elements to that. We, we as a studio design with stories of place layered in, that's really important to us. And so there's a number of kind of elements that we wanted to think about. And the idea of hallmarking we discussed with Andrew and how we might create people's presence in the garden, patients, NHS staff, and, and in fact, everyone who'd worked in the Chelsea Garden we didn't want people to feel a distance from it when they saw it on the TV or read about it. We wanted that involvement, particularly because we'd had those months of conversations. And it is a garden for real people, by real people, which I think does set it apart at Chelsea. And so we, between our studio and Andrew's studio, we threw around lots of different ideas and we came up with the idea of something very simple, which is a thumbprint imprint on just on a, uh, an oval of clay to and they'll be mounted on the walls of the pod and at the we targeted ourselves with a thousand and we've got 1200 at the moment which is pretty good going um, and we'll collect more at Chelsea which is great for the charity because it's about engaging potential supporters um, and people at the show and talking about their messaging 
Um, but it's been really powerful. Um, the charity runs incredible um, creative and arts programs. So it's linked very well with that. And that has a proven impact on patients' kind of recovery and mental well-being. So that felt that that was that installation will be happening at Chelsea and then they'll be carefully removed and that garden building which is going on to Sheffield they'll then be reinstalled and then as more patients pass through that centre more of those will be added to other pods as well. It's like it's like the most hyper human hallmark. Mm. Um, I think I think it's what you're right. It's again it's almost the process was as important as the kind of final installation. Mm. You know the kind of the kind of collective effort, the, the Horatio family that's contributed to it has been brilliant. And I think in in some ways it gives that kind of authorship of the architecture in the garden to many, many more people. And quite rightly, because as I keep on kind of saying, the, the best designers we've worked with are the people that we've kind of consulted with. Yes, we know how to put the insulation in the right place and specify the right kind of planting in the right area. But actually it's that it's the shaping of that that happens through conversations with, with our users. It's interesting though, the, you know, the kind of idea of Chelsea flower show, I'm sure it's a huge help to the charity to kind of raise awareness about the work that they do. But do you have other hopes and aspirations for the you know many people who attend uh, Chelsea Flower Show? What do you hope that you, they take away from the experience of viewing this piece of Horatio's garden? I think Chelsea is really powerful. It's a very powerful platform for conversations about environment and 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 the wider it's it's the garden world and those of us who love plants and gardens but there is a very direct link to the environment and how people see sustainable spaces and when conversations are had at Chelsea that does ha- that does have impact you know it is the biggest flower show in the world it has global broadcast it has 170,000 visitors um it reaches millions of people and what's powerful about it is it's not the sector, whether it's well, the built built um, landscape or architecture sector, just talking to itself. We are prompting conversations and engaging. And also Chelsea is amazing because it allows us to test out new ideas. So I touched on the idea of how we handled our flooring in the garden and how that can't have joints or bumps. And so we, we've developed, we've worked with a cement-free um, company to develop a, a kind of environmentally friendly, patient friendly, uh, cement free terrazzo with no joints that's kind of created in a modular manner so it can be removed from the garden. Um, you know, Chelsea allows us to do that. And, and it also is permeable, which is a kind of first as well, because obviously when things are laid with no gradient, we have to move the water away. Um, so we get we get to think about new ideas. And that takes me back to that point about kind of seeing the garden, seeing the garden, the requirements of the garden as a creative opportunity, not a restriction. Andrew, for the pod, do you have hopes when people kind of experience this uh, structure? Do you have um, things that you hope they'll take them away, take away from them, or take, (laughs) take away from it? I think, I think um, there's, there's many aspects of it around, um, you know, it's it's low embodied carbon, it's, you know, it's got, um, healthy building biology so the materials are kind of low in VOCs it's got great daylighting we've worked with um, Atelier 10 on the environmental design so it's um, 
really, really well considered. We've got a fantastic structural engineer called Haynes Tillett Steele, who have also contributed with some really intelligent thinking around the structure to make everything really, really efficient. Um, and I feel that we would probably be preaching to, um, uh, you know, you know, again, a bit of echo chamber within the architectural community where all of this will kind of align and sit really well with people. So I think it's really good to do that on a more global stage and, you know, drawing attention to it from those that may not have considered it outside of the architectural kind of community. Um, but I think it's actually um, more interesting to think about how people might take away sustainability in a sort of broader sense of the term. You know, it's, a, it's this project is about social impact it really resonates with the kind of work that we really enjoy doing and I feel that for us as designers and creatives and intelligent kind of real estate you know wider real estate people it's about um it's about sustainability in creating mixed communities how do we create inclusive cities what what are the kind of processes to arrive at places that really represent you know the widest kind of sector and you know i was just doing a little bit of research um before we jumped on this call and by 20 2050 there'd be 6.25 billion people with disabilities um living in cities so this isn't really kind of a marginal issue this is should be kind of treated as as, as a priority so Yes, the agenda around retrofitting, the agenda around sustainability in terms of, you know, uh, environmental, ecological perspective is there. Where is the policy for making sure that we're creating inclusive environments? I don't really think Part M or Lifetime Homes is really those sorts of policies that, that, that um, well, they just need to go that step further, really. And we think about that in inclusivity maybe you know within the buildings the built environment structures if they're public buildings etc but really you know our parks our gardens these spaces that you're associating with you know incredible social cohesion and well-being and all of these benefits not being able to be shared because of those things like cobbles and gradients and and park paths yeah, and also, and I think that's true of landscape. I do think it's true of architecture as well. And, you know, we talked to, you know, the first conversation I had with um, someone on the board at Horatio's um, is a is somebody who was in a spinal injury centre 20 years ago and she advised on it. And she said, I'm really tired of going to a different entrance um, of a building. That's unacceptable, you know. So I think it's, it's we, we, as Andrew said, I think it's time to step up. In terms of that healing engagement with the gardens, I wanted to ask you, Charlotte, around, you know, are there particular plants or, it, you know, kind of things that you, you know, link to um, to that particular calming quality? Does that influence your your plant selection, the fact that they are coping with trauma or is it kind of, you know, is it more vibrant? mix of plants more vibrant colors less vibrant does it inform uh the trauma of the experience inform your your plant selection so the planting is really informed by different ways of seeing so whether you're in a bed looking up or whether you're in a wheelchair so understanding layers is really important whether that's an upper canopy layer or smaller trees shrubs uh, herbaceous perennials which is the kind of the flowers and the planting and the texture in the ferns and also 
thinking about seasonality because when people are in hospital, they are there for many months and that garden has to work 365 days of the year. So whether we're thinking about, you know, the great flourishes of summer or the freshness of spring, but we also have to think about the structure of the garden in winter, uh, you know, and that's kind of beautifully structured trees, perhaps with interesting bark or, you know, with berries, bringing in wildlife. And I think wildlife was one of the things that when we spoke to patients, they particularly noted um, that the water feature in particular that's in all of the gardens and is in the in our Chelsea garden and will be at Sheffield, but how that attracts wildlife and how the sort of presence and the animation of wildlife in the garden is so important um, to patients. So thinking about plants that are wildlife friendly and attractors, thinking about things that are quite sensory and textural as well, um, but just remembering that creating those shady daffled spaces is, is really important. In terms of the relationship to place, you talked a little bit about Sheffield and the hallmarks. Does that also follow into the kind of trees selected or plants selected, or is there um, a link to Sheffield? So Sheffield's um, industry, for which it's so famed, is comes from its natural resources. It comes from its kind of wooded valley sides and waterways. And so our planting will be very much influenced by that, taking those kind of hazels, those field maples, birches, things that were coppiced and used in, in um, industrial production. We've planted in the Chelsea Garden and we will at Sheffield as well, birches because birch, birch branches were sh thrown onto hot steel to burn off the impurities um, when it was made originally. So actually tying in these kind of, stories and layers is really important is important to us in how we work but also I think it really grounds the garden and gives it a spirit of place. Andrew how are you working with those ideas of Sheffield I mean you talked about again there's the hallmarks uh, in the thumbprints but other than that um, does your structure of the pod um, speak to Sheffield in in any particular way? Well, we've very deliberately not built it out of steel, which might be disappointing to people from Sheffield, but um, for kind of obvious obvious reasons, um, I suppose we've uh, we've um, designed it both. I guess like focused kind of on it's a very people centric kind of approach. Um, the, the 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 timber shingles, which are UK grain um, sequoia uh, wood, which is a really durable. Um, Tim, but that's that's our craft really that's where we feel like we can create something that has texture that has sort of it feels like it's had the hands of of makers on it which it has of course they've been uh, hand cut um but that's obviously in combination with kind of digital design to get the mapping of all of those shingles across what what is quite a complex kind of curvature so um the, the probably the connection is probably less so in terms of um, uh, the pod and Sheffield. It's designed to kind of seamlessly sink into the garden, isn't it? Because as it silvers, it will be really beautiful. It'll feel like a woodland space and a, a kind of it's nest like and uh, uh, not a hideaway, but a nook. And, yeah, yeah. Um, Shall I start that one again? Yeah, I, I think I think. Um, it's it's much more about settling in the pod within the the, the context of the garden and um uh, i my closest kind of you know analogy is predator which is a very strange um 90, 90s movie where the alien 
sort of like manages to mimic the kind of landscaping, but yet is kind of present at the same time. So how do you, how do you kind of through, through, uh, you know, our dialogue as designers, how do you make sure that the thing feels both, you know, important and relevant in the garden and has a, has a presence yet can fall back into the, the context of the, of the landscape as well. It feels very, this focus on texture and the kind of haptic quality and the made quality feels very um, uh, much the antithesis of the sleek hospital um, surfaces that we're kind of accustomed to associating with a medical care. Is that very deliberate? Is this really to set it across from that sterileness? And is there any problem with that? Do we have the wrong perception of gardens as places that aren't sterile or don't belong in that hospital setting? There's been a very deliberate um, commitment to craft and texture and the sort of transportative effect of gardens and landscapes to take us away from that sterile setting. Um, you know, Andrew touched on craft and talking about the stories of Sheffield, we have these amazing artisans from the industrial period called the Little Mesters, who were very specialist in what they delivered. They filed or they cut, they did one thing. And it was a, it was a very Sheffield-based artisan way of working. And we wanted to talk about that in the garden um, and again, ground it in place. So we have used, we've been sort of used and been inspired by the old cutlery traditions in how we've created our water feature and how that, what that features. There are cairns through the garden, stone cairns, which connect to the Peak District, which is only, you know, you can walk into the Peak District from Sheffield. It's very close. And, and they represent this. Not only do they give structure in the garden in those winter periods and beautiful stone texture, but they represent this idea of pathways and guiding people through sometimes difficult journeys where we don't know the way. So we wanted to weave in those stories of Sheffield. So I think together, the elements, you know, Andrew's pod and the elements of the garden create a space that transports people. It's such a powerful weaving of stories together and these kind of vantage points. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, all, I'm struck again by, you know, the mention of the placement of the roof light and the views, the windows in the pod and this idea, you know, do you see a problem, Andrew, in the kind of uh, assumption in, in architecture that everyone is is viewing at, you know, between five and six feet, <laughs> as opposed to uh, this great, um, you know, variety of, of viewpoints and um, ways of seeing, um, you know, that you're kind of uh, experiencing through the eyes of the people using Horatio's garden yeah 100 I think you know we, we've got metric handbooks and we've got all of these kind of guidance and diagrams and so forth and yet we still kind of see things through our own lens and that's a kind of you know a uh a kind of fault of the human condition I guess and but it's frustrating and we've, we've got a project um uh for the artist studios and uh the clients uh really annoyed with the previous designers because they put all the the um peepholes in the doors to this artist studios at a six foot two person's height the architect was six foot two what a surprise you know and i think um there are that that we just got to be more sensitive and and we could only go so far and but but i think 
what I think I actually think that architecture is a profession, designers we just need to be more diverse in our teams as well. So within our design team, we feel like we've got people that okay, we don't have if we don't have someone who's in a wheelchair. So we know we need to kind of really consult carefully with wheelchair users at the garden, but we do feel like we've got a representation of, of society as best as we can within our design team. And I think if you haven't, then do collaborate with people that do do work together and to and to fill those gaps. So I think there is a, an ego of architects that we need to just kind of drop and and start just being more considerate and be be more human about things. And that process of co-design or that process of conversation and of, um, you know, kind of trying to get into the emotional state of the people you're designing for and the perspective of the people you're designing for. I mean, it strikes me as something that you've both, you know, taken quite a bit of time to do. And is, is that another pressure? Is it, you know, does it take any longer is that a, a misrepresentation or do you or or is it just that the process um needs to be built into you know the kind of design process I think it's got to be built into the design process ultimately okay it may, may take longer it may take more of our time to to do this process but it's it will only come to by everyone in in the backside later where you've got things that aren't working that need to be retrofitted that and and I think there is a there's a lack of um you know post occupancy studies of buildings and I think we need to be doing more of more of that and I think that will then contribute to a more more efficient co-design process at the beginning as well but I, I just think that it's um, it's short-sighted if, if we think that it's going to um, cost us more or it's going to take longer because I think it will just be something that we'll, we'll pay back in, in the A future. A six-foot-two-inch uh, view hall is forever. <laughs> it's, exactly. And I, and, I, and I think that, you know, I'm, I'm talking not just on a kind of commercial level, I'm just talking about, you know, on, on a social, environmental and so forth. I think it's... It's just um, we just need to be more considerate designers, and I think that that may take longer for more complex projects. Everyone thinks of landscape as being more, uh, you know, on top of things, uh, or at least um, in terms of sustainability, surely, and in terms of kind of working with the elements. But in terms of accessibility, do you see a gap there um, in this kind of thinking? Um, around alternative uh, and accessible landscapes, Charlotte? I think we can always do better. I wouldn't want to compare landscape with architecture, but I do, but I think there are brilliant, we have role models to follow. You know, I think about Vienna where their public spaces have to be tested. They have to be equally gender tested. And as a result, their public spaces are used more by girls, not more by girls and boys, but equally by girls and boys. And getting kids out, into the open air is great for them but it also the appreciation of the natural landscape provides passionate supporters and defenders later in life so um yeah i think we can all be better and just going back to the the question about are we you know the time that we invest at the beginning i mean surely as designers having spending the time on the most thorough brief 
and research element provides us with the opportunity to make exceptional work in the next stages. So it's about, I think, how we allocate that time rightly, rather than seeing consultation as a tick box, which I think we can all acknowledge is the case a lot of the time. So that thorough briefing process, taking that time to really develop the brief to a point where you're not backtracking and trying to retrofit a conceptual idea onto the limitations, you know, the physical limitations of a, a wheelchair user. You're actually beginning taking the time to properly flesh out that brief from the people's point of view, the various points of view. And and also making sure that we're going back to people regularly and testing how we develop our design. This is an iterative dialogue. This isn't just me going to people at the start or Andrew going to people at the start. Um, and it's what we've done for Sheffield, the Sheffield Horatio's Garden, is continually taking back pieces of work and asking for feedback. Um, we took a piece of work back last month and the most bit of feedback was, can we have a bar in the garden? Um, but <laughs> those things are brilliant because they allow us to really see it as a social space where that's required, you know, how we distill that and inform our work. So it's it's not just the briefing. It is building in the dialogue all along, all along the way, I think. And has Horatio Garden, you're saying this is coming, you know, coming up to the eighth garden. Um, you know, have they changed quite a bit since that first garden through to the latest iteration? Well, what's happened is they've learned. I think they've learned and and we talk about small things making a big difference, don't we? And they've learned those small things that have improved. So you have this kind of sense of um, change and development across the gardens um, as they move across time. But certainly the first garden at Salisbury, um, which was designed by Cleve West, is very beautiful, very well used, very appreciated um, and really set the, the benchmark for all the gardens. But yes, Small changes. So, for example, I mentioned the, the gradient issue um, it, there. There are a couple of small gradients and patients new to wheelchairs, as Andrew mentioned, who don't necessarily have the same core strength, found it impossible to uh, navigate a one in 80 gradient, you know. Um, so it's really understanding those details. And the early ones, they didn't have pods, did they, Andrew? Is the pod a later kind of a new addition to it, or were there always sheltered spaces within Horatio's Gardens? I can answer that if you want, or I can tell you the answer, Andrew, if that's not. Tell me the answer, yeah. Okay. I, th I think it's a no, but I don't know which number it, the pod was. They retrofitted Salisbury, which is the garden yeah. room, and then um, they, they started developing them after the third one. So, um, so, and they have just been, they're literally the most, one of the most popular elements. Okay. I, all, I, I, all I was going to add actually was um, around, uh, a really key point was about meet, meeting um, the users in their own environment. Mm. Um, you know, I think the idea of make, making people feel comfortable, making people feel they can contribute is really important. And I think, you know, one of our, roles as designers is to, is to demystify this design process you know mm -hmm. and to 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 talk in plain english you know to not to not be an expert as it were because we are we're kind of experts in asking quite the right questions most of the time but we're not experts in their own lives in their own environment and so it's it's again it's shedding that ego and, and really trying to make those uh those that processes kind of 
open and and as, as inclusive as possible. One thing I wanted to ask um, was around the staff. We've talked a lot about the patients and their you know, needs, but I'm sure um, this can be quite challenging work. So does Horatio's Guarded support the nurses and um, and staff working within the spinal units as well? It's a really vital element of what they do. You know, it is a, um, it, it provides support um, for staff just as, as much as it does for patients. And when we visited, we've often seen staff having meetings outside or just a cup of coffee on their own. And also talking about how the garden provides an opportunity for things like um, occupational therapy. So uh, one consultant said to us, the gym is only open nine to five and you have to make an appointment for your 45 minute session. But the garden is open all the time and you can practice moving around in a wheelchair or you can help the head gardener pot seeds and work on your um, digital um, movement. There are lots of things you can do in the garden, which which there's that sense that actually it is a really holistic way of recuperating. But definitely uh, the support of NHS staff is at the heart of it as well. And is there always a head gardener for each of the gardens? Do they move around? Um, so is there always that maintenance built into it or are the patients um, engaged in that maintenance of the planting? Well, I think what really sets Horatia's apart as a charity is that they have this kind of commitment to, they might call it high horticulture, but they want a garden that is exceptionally beautiful and they make a commitment to the NHS um, to maintain that and to employ someone full time. And in most of the gardens, there's a head gardener and often a gardens administrator who helps coordinate a very regular team of volunteers who come in to the um, come into the centre. Um, but then there's loads of activities for patients and patients are always really welcome to get involved. And, and they can range from horticultural activities, and planting bulbs or planting seeds and um, harvesting vegetables right through to um, arts and crafts in the garden. It, it just provides this very open space, flexible space. Amazing. I mean, I, I want to congratulate you both. And I know actually it's not quite open yet, but please tell everybody where they can find you at the Chelsea Flower Show. Um, and also uh, just, you know, congratulations on what an inspiring project. And thank you so much for talking to me about it today. Oh, thank you very much indeed. Thank so where do much. they find you? Are they oh, you're on? Yes. <laughs> so so there are a number of um it's a busy Chelsea this year, uh, which is great. Lots of um lots of involvement. Um the sort of main street, as it were, is called Main Avenue. So we're at the top end of Main Avenue. The number is 321, not too hard to remember, I hope. Um and I guess please come along, please see the garden, please watch it on TV. I know the charity would be overwhelmed if people could vote for it to be the people, BBC People's Choice. And also this is a fundraising platform for them. So in, when we talked earlier about things that we take away, truthfully, this is a really important way to raise the awareness of the charity, but also help fund the Sheffield work. Thank you both for talking to me today. Thank you. Thanks for making Thank the time. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this podcast and you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash the developer UK. Thanks a lot.